I have entitled the message, The Zeal and the Knowledge of Jesus. That's really what we are going to be talking about as we come back to this section again. If you look at John chapter 2 and verse 13, I want to get right into it and read down to verse 25. Jesus has come at the Passover of the Jews. He's come up to Jerusalem. Verse 14, it says, And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money, and he overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Right there we see the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of truth who has come to lead us and guide us into all truth is at work on His disciples. He's at work in that temple. He's at work in the minds and the hearts of the men that have been cast out by Jesus. He's at work in Jesus who's doing the cleansing. God is so amazing when it comes to quickening His Word to us. And so they remember the words of Scripture, the zeal for your house has eaten me up. A quotation from the Psalms that referred to the Messiah. This was a time when people were looking for the Messiah. We go on to read in verse 18, So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us? Show to us since you do these things. And Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? And John adds a footnote here of clarification, as he does throughout his gospel. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover... During the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man because he knew what was in man. Quite an amazing passage. What I want to talk about in this passage is the zeal that Jesus had for the temple of God and for the things of God. Then I want to talk about his sign as Messiah. And then his knowledge of men. Just three simple things, his zeal, his sign, and his knowledge. But this thing about his zeal that we find in verses 13 down through 17. We passed over it last time, but I want to return to it because it was right at the end of the message. And you might have felt we were going to develop it and we didn't. And perhaps you felt shortchanged. So we don't want to leave you shortchanged here in the church. We want to give you all that we can. So I want to come back to it. As you read over these verses, it seems impossible to read them and not be moved towards zeal on a personal level. I mean, here is our hero. This is the captain of our faith. This is the leader of our souls. This is the perfect example of the Christian life. And so here is Jesus consumed by this zeal for his father's house. And I look at that and I read that and my initial reaction is to say, Oh God, give me this kind of zeal. I want the zeal of your house to just eat me up, to just gobble me up, to consume me. I think that this is what was on Jim Elliot's mind when he wrote these words. He said, Am I ignitable? God deliver me from the dread asbestos of other things and saturate me with the oil of the Spirit of God, that I might become a burning flame. The zeal of God to consume us. The fire of God to just swallow us up. James R. Graham wrote that those who in time past have wrought great things for God have possessed a sanctified energy, totally devoid of sloth. A Christian life with no laziness in it. A Christian life where laziness goes out the door without you even realizing it because you're consumed, you're caught up in a zeal that's come from within. Remember when Jesus told the woman at the well, He said, Look, if you will believe on Me, out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. He was saying there's going to be a life. There's going to be a force that's going to flow from deep within. 
It's going to come rushing from within you, not just from without, but from within, and it's going to transform your life. This is the kind of thing that men and women have had throughout the ages that had a passion for God. They've had a zeal that was devoid of sloth. No laziness left in their life because they had such a passion for God. So turned on for the Lord that they simply couldn't sit around any longer and just waste time. I can remember a period in my life where I slept until 2 o'clock every day and had absolutely no reason for it. Maybe that's why I slept in. I had no reason to get up. But every day I slept in. And then I would stay up late and sleep in some more. Lazy, lazy, lazy. And I was a Christian at that point in time. So long ago now, I can bring it up and talk about it. It's way back there in the archives. But as we come to look at this passage, and we desire to become zealous followers of Jesus, what do you think we can learn from this passage? One thing is we need to learn about His zeal, so that our zeal can be like His zeal. And one of the things I see here is that His zeal was tempered by a passion for God's glory. This is an important thing. Look at John 2.16 here. It says here that he said to those who sold doves, take these things away and do not make, didn't say my house, didn't say our house, he said do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And then in verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house, for God's house has eaten me up. So they looked at this man here, Jesus, that they had only just recently come to know. And they see this incredible zeal. And they realize right up front, because this is the beginning of his ministry, they realize in his first appearance in the temple, in his public ministry, that this man has a passion for the glory of God. He has the purest of motives. He's not gaining a following after himself. His whole reason for living is to bring people to God, that they might come to know God and follow him. And what this did then is it left him at odds with the religionists of his day. If I could coin that phrase, religionists. I don't even know if it's a word. But that's what these people were. They were religionists. Deep into religion. But very far from God. Anytime you have an individual who comes along and they have a passion, a genuine passion for the glory of God, they will always be at odds with the dead religious system of the day. And they're always about. But here is God Himself in a body, and He comes, and He has one passion, the glory of God, and He is right away at odds with the dead religious system of the day. He literally walks in and smashes it up by cleansing the temple. Why is that? It's because when you have a true passion for the glory of God, you are completely intolerant of self-serving irreverence. Self-serving irreverence. You just can't stand it when you see individuals who are supposedly leading God's people along. You can't stand it when you see them using God's people. You can't stand it when you see a worship service that has no true worship going on. But more of a commercial type thing. More of the gaining of a crowd. So often the church is like that. Big crowds, lots of commercials, major money-making events. No reverence, no real worship going on for God. And if you then have a true passion for God, you are at odds with those people. You are intolerant of that kind of thing. You have God's heart on it. It's abhorrent to you. And so Jesus was directly at odds with the religious system of his day because of his zeal and passion for God. Here he takes action against it. He cleanses the temple. And another place he taught against it publicly. Could you turn in your Bible? Then we'll come back to John Hold your thumb there and turn to Matthew chapter 23. We'll look at this together. We see this attitude of wanting God to be glorified among the people. And we see his intolerance for shallow irreverence and self-serving religiosity. Absolutely no tolerance for it at all. And he deals with it more heavily than any other sin, really. You don't see Jesus acting like this. Anytime, anywhere, except with these type of people. So Matthew 23, 13. He says to the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, He says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Can you imagine here they are in their very expensive religious outfits, their robes and everything that they had cost them lots of money. And here is a peasant rabbi standing off on the side in a little peasant garment. And he is rebuking them up one side, down the other. Woe to you, 
scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. It's a perfect picture of God not wanting any part of the commercial scene that's so often a part of religious things. And he says, the problem with you guys is you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. Honest seekers bump into you and they're shut out of heaven rather than let in. And he says, neither do you go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. You even get in the way of people trying to get in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, kind of like so much of the media fleecing of the flock that goes on today. And you see the big appeals for all the money. Then you see the people in the audience, and some of them appear to be poor little widows. And you understand, they're playing off of these people. their sympathy and all. And he says, you devour widows' houses. Nothing new. And for a pretense, you make long prayers. And therefore, you receive the greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. You travel land and sea to make one proselyte. And when he is one, look at this, you make him twice as much the son of hell as yourselves. You don't hear a lot of preaching like that today. And you certainly never hear it in churches that are all commercialized out and are trying to get a big crowd because you get a little talk like that and nobody will come back the following week. So I don't imagine Jesus would be allowed in too many pulpits today. And I don't think he would butter up some of these people on TV if he had a chance to sit there with them. I think he would say, woe unto you. You're making disciples twice the children of hell as yourselves. And that'd be the end of him. He wouldn't be asked back to the show. But you see that his zeal and his passion for God's glory left him with the purest of motives. Back in John 2.17, says, Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. The purest of motives. It seems to me that a passion for the glory of God is really the ultimate motive purifier. To live for God's glory. To be self-effacing, to forget about yourself, to say with John the Baptist, I must decrease, but oh, he must increase. This is the reason for living. The ultimate motive purifier. You see, we all, I think, need to have zeal. And if we understand what's going on here, certainly we would pray for it, but we must realize that there are too many people that have a zeal for self-glory. We need a good dose of this passion for God's glory that we see here in Jesus. It is the ultimate motive purifier. Now, how do you know if you have a passion for God that's pure? How do you know if your zeal that you're experiencing is God-glorifying? Well, I'd say a very simple test you can place on yourself is this. How patient are you about what you want to do for God with all this zeal that you have found? How patient are you? I think that if you're really, really, really impatient... It's just a sign that really your motives aren't pure, but rather you're wanting to use this zeal for your own glory and you can't wait to get it. That's why you're so impatient. And I have found that the most impatient times in my life when I have zeal, I've been in that condition. If the truth were known, so have you, if you admit it. And yet when we're patient and full of zeal, and we're saying, oh God, whatever, whatever you want to do, Lord. That's what I want to do. And Lord, in your time. In the meantime, Lord, let me take it one day at a time. Let me get to know you one day at a time. Lord, you want to continue to teach me? You want me to not despise the days of small things? Lord, I'm as zealous as I've ever been, but Lord, I'm waiting on you. I think that's a good test. Your patience level. In Jeremiah 45, 5, God says, And seek you thou great things for yourself. Seek them not. Seek them not. Do you realize by now that God is the great master of the come-up-hither in the church? You know what the come-up-hither is? That is when you have a heart full of zeal, you have a desire to be used, you love God, you want to see His glory furthered, and yet you're patient and you believe that God is big enough, that He knows your phone number, He knows your address, He knows your name, He knows how to get in contact with you. And when it's time for you to do these things that you feel that you're supposed to do, He has a way of giving you the beck and call from those around you who have already proven their ministry and are already being used, and then they give you the beck and call. And when they do, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. God says, do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. Take a look at your zeal. Is there a patience there? 
Is it tempered by a passion for God's glory? This is the thing that made Jesus' zeal so wonderful. Another thing is that his zeal was tempered by knowledge. Two kinds of knowledge, really. Knowledge of men's hearts and a knowledge of the things of God, the things of the Word of God. Of course, he was the Word of God. He is the Word of God. But his zeal was tempered by knowledge. This thing that his zeal was tempered by knowledge of men's hearts is so interesting to me because we read down in verse 25 it says and he had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man so as he comes into the temple to cleanse it he understands what is in the mind of every man there so that he didn't make one false move every move he made was right every move he made was not to be regretted three years later there was nothing to regret on the cross. He had done all things well, and every move he made was to fulfill the will of the Father. So with this knowledge of all men, his zeal is tempered, it's directed, and it's effective, and it's even restrained by that knowledge so that he doesn't splash over into an area with a clumsy, unbridled zeal because he knows everywhere, every man, every thought, every individual to interact with and just how to interact with them in his zeal. As we look at Jesus, we have to realize he had a zeal that was tempered by a knowledge of men's hearts that was perfect. Now, we want zeal. We seek God for zeal. But we must realize along the way that we don't always know men's hearts. Even when we think we do, there's an incomplete element there. I mean, we must live as gracious people in the Christian life. Yes, we must be true to the Word, and that's the next thing we'll see here in a minute, but we must understand we don't always know men's hearts. And in the expression of our zeal in the Christian life, let's remember to give our brother or sister the benefit of the doubt. Now, where there's a clear transgression of the Word of God, that's one thing. The heart has obviously been made manifest to everyone. But where you don't understand your brother's heart, let God put a little bridle on your zeal and temper it, lest you roll right over your brother or your sister in your zeal, and then you live to regret it. Jesus didn't live to regret anything. Because of this perfect knowledge of men's hearts, we don't have that perfect knowledge, and so we must be careful. The other thing is that his zeal was tempered by a knowledge of God's Word, because, of course, he knew the Word in an amazing way. He used to teach, and the, the people would marvel, and they'd be astonished because they'd say, how does this man teach like this, having never learned? And up he comes, and he teaches, and our hearts burn. We're, we're astonished when he's done. He had this great knowledge of the Word. He was the living Word. And it was that knowledge that made him uncompromising. It was that knowledge that drove him into the temple to cleanse it out. He couldn't stand the violation of God's word he saw going on in there. Here is this guidance and this temperance, this knowledge of men's hearts combined with a knowledge of the word, with an intolerance to sin, a desire for the passion for the glory of God, an understanding of God's ways, a zeal tempered by an understanding of God's ways, the move of his spirit, the move of his love, the move of his holiness. A zeal that we see with some restraints. Sort of a meekness thing. Meekness being power under control. But tempered by God's word and tempered by a knowledge of men's hearts. And I want to say to you, we must have a zeal that is tempered by the word of God. Tempered by knowledge. Paul speaks in Romans 10 too. He says, for I bear them witness they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Someone has well said that zeal without knowledge is the sister of folly. Let me say that to you again. Zeal without knowledge is the sister of folly. So here's a person all charged up with zeal, but the zeal is not tempered and guided and restrained even by the Word of God, and so it just simply becomes another form of folly, the sister of folly. We must have the knowledge of God's Word to be tempering our zeal. But as we think about that, we have to have the knowledge of God's Word increasing all the time. Increasing all the time. And we have to have our knowledge tempered by time. Our knowledge should be increasing and our knowledge should be getting tempered with the passing of time, going forward and yet maturing. So that there must be an element in your life and mine where I'm digesting what I'm learning. I'm thinking about it. 
I'm praying over it. I'm working through scenarios in my life, looking at this and looking at that in relationship to the things I'm learning in the Word of God, so that there is this temperance coming into my zeal. Yes, we must have knowledge, but then even then we must be careful. I have found that in my life, some of my most zealous moments are when I come to understand some truth I haven't understood before. And here I am, I'm studying through the Word, and maybe a doctrine just becomes clearer than it's ever been to me, and all of a sudden it gets a grip on my life. And I get so excited about it, I get so zealous. First thing I want to do is tell someone what I've discovered. But the problem right there is that sometimes one of the greatest producers of newfound zeal can also be one of the greatest producers of newfound pride. Paul said to us in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2, he said, Knowledge puffs up, but charity edifies, or love edifies. And he says, If anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. So here you are, you want to be zealous according to knowledge, so you're learning. You get this new knowledge, you're all charged up with more zeal. But now you've got this thing in there, this newfound pride because now you know more than some people around you because you've learned some more and yet Paul says knowledge puffs up love edifies if you really think you're starting to learn something do you know that you don't know hardly anything now when you come to believe that you've learned so much that you've now learned that you haven't learned hardly anything now you're getting ready to be used now you're getting ready to be one who can be both knowledgeable and loving because the more knowledge we get the more we know how much we don't know and the more careful we become with the knowledge that we do have because we understand that we've got missing links which if we get too zealous with this knowledge with missing links we could do more damage than good this is a great lesson I've been learning in my life over the years in my life I have been so fired up at times with the truth. I mean, I love the Word of God. When I study it, it, it makes me excited. And I've gotten so fired up at times with newfound knowledge that I've used it in my zeal, lacking further knowledge and time to digest it and think it through, that I have acted often in an unhumble way. Notice I avoided saying pride. I acted in an unhumble way. And with a lack of patience. And I've lived to regret it. I've lived to regret it. Water under the bridge, and I'm glad it's gone. I'm not proud anymore. I'm humble. We need a zeal that is tempered by a passion for God's glory. We need a zeal that is tempered by knowledge, but we need to let the knowledge have time to digest and work deep down into us. We need to blend our knowledge with experience so that we don't just charge off and start banging away at people with this knowledge that isn't tempered. It must be tempered by passion for God's glory and a zeal tempered by knowledge itself. The third thing we see here about Jesus is that his zeal was tempered by love. What he did in cleansing the temple was not an expression of hate so much as it was a dynamic expression of love. He looked at all those Gentiles crowding into the court of the Gentiles wanting a quiet place to worship God and he wanted them to know the love of God so he cleared the place out. When we went to Israel last year, I was so full of expectation, just so blessed at many places. One of the greatest moments of expectation is when you come down the Mount of Olives. You're winding your way down and someone whispers, the Garden of Gethsemane is right over there. That's a moment in your life. And yet, as we could see the olive trees, you hear about the 2,000, 3,000 year old olive tree that's still in the garden, that's living, Jesus probably touch that tree and it's still living that's why and you're excited to see it I mean these are all real expectations and yet at the same time you you are in a sector that's Muslim effectively and you have these people they don't care about the Garden of Gethsemane and they're on the streets and they're selling you trinkets and postcards 24 for a dollar a picture of Jerusalem this kind of thing and they're pawing at you and grabbing at you and it tends to kind of quench the whole thing at the garden you're waiting for this magic moment you're coming to the Garden of Gethsemane and a fight breaks out in the alley and there's a big kerfuffle with the whole team and someone has been pawed at, you know, from the team and, ah, you know, they're all upset and now one of the brothers is mad and, hold me back, hold me back, you know, hey, the garden. 
Imagine Jesus loving the Gentiles, wanting them to come to know the love of God. There is a court for the Gentiles to come and worship God in quietude and reverie. He comes in there, it's bedlam, it's chaos. And in an act of love, he cleanses it out. He wants these people to come to know the love of God. His zeal was tempered by love. We must see that. Another way we see it is that he was sensitive in seeking to knock down the barriers that man had put up. He was sensitive to not erect barriers himself. And he did that. You can see it if you look at John 2.16. And he said to those, be mindful now, he drove out the cattle... He flipped over the money changers' tables and threw the money on the ground. And then he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Notice he says, Take the doves away. Why didn't he simply, as he's flipping tables and driving cattle out, why didn't he simply open the door to the cages and let the doves fly away? Because Jesus was sensitive to the condition of the people there. He didn't come to take from them. He came to give to them. You see, drive the cattle out of the temple, they'll go bloping down the street and stop somewhere and find a little grass and start munching. So they're not going anywhere. Then you have the money falls on the ground. Well, that'll be picked up quick enough. First thing to get picked up, I'm sure, was the money back in those bags. I'm telling you, moving quick. No loss. Yes, instruction. Yes, rebuke. But he didn't come to take from them. And if he had taken from them and they all had this major loss, then they say, well, this guy comes to steal from us. No, he didn't want to erect barriers in his zeal when he came to take down barriers men had put up so that men could come freely to God. His zeal was tempered by love and sensitivity to others. And this is something that we've got to see. J.C. Ryle Put it this way, he said, It would have been well for the church in years past if all church reformers had blended like wisdom with a like zeal in their proceedings as Jesus here. He said, In the situation before us, all were rebuked, all were instructed, and nothing was lost. And that's the thing we have to see. Because what happens is often we see Jesus flipping over tables, driving out cattle, and we think, Well, yeah, somebody needs to do that today in the church, and I feel the calling God. And we miss the love and we miss the sensitivity. We are insensitive to people's condition in life. And in our insensitivity, we end up erecting barriers between them and God rather than taking them down. We need a zeal that's tempered like our Lord's, tempered with love. You want to know what some of the warning signs are of a growing untempered zeal? There's warning signs. Let me give you a couple of them. One is a sense of superiority over our fellow believers. A sense of superiority over our fellow believers. We are all in the church as Christians. We're like children growing up. We're born again. We're babies, baby Christians, infant Christians. We become toddler Christians. We become adolescent Christians. We become teenage Christians. And eventually we become adult Christians. The language of John the Apostle is children, young men, and fathers. He breaks it down very simply like that. What I'm saying to you is this. There's a growing period in the Christian life. We cannot escape it. We will all grow from being infants to toddlers to adolescents. And then we will have our know-it-all teenage years as Christians where we think we know everything. We know more than everyone around us, whether it be those ahead of us or those on the side of us or those behind us. Suddenly we are the ones and wisdom will die with us, right? It's inescapable. One brother got up in the men's fellowship the other day, a young man in our church. He opened up his little thing he was about to share by saying, Now, it may just be the recklessness or the carelessness of youth. And I cut him off. I said, That's a big part of it already. Go ahead. Because whatever he was about to say, he was young. It was inescapable. We all go through it. We must grow up. But one of the warning signs of an untempered zeal is a sense of superiority over other fellow believers. And another thing I would suggest to you is a lack of respect for our former teachers. We tend to think we know more than our teachers now. Oh, we've had a few years, read a few books, and all of a sudden, oh, we just, ah, I don't even listen to them anymore. How about this, a sense of anger. You've become so zealous. Oh, you've got a little bit of knowledge now. Never mind the fact you don't understand the 85 other surrounding doctrines, but you've toppled onto a new doctrine. 
And now you have this sense of anger. Why was I robbed of this? Man, I have been there. Why was this held back from me? Now I've got to let everybody know. And away I go in my zeal. I'm mad. I'm feeling superior to my brethren. I'm feeling no more respect for my teachers. And I've got to set everybody straight. You know, Thomas Brooks, old Puritan, said years ago, he said, Zeal is like a fire. In the chimney it is one of the best servants. But out of the chimney is one of the worst masters. Fire let loose out of control is so destructive. So we get this sense of superiority, a lack of respect for our fellow believers, a lack of respect for our former teachers, a sense of anger, an overly critical judgmental attitude, a great impatience with fellow believers. Come on, catch up with me. What's the matter with you? You forget, you've only been running for three days. You've been lagging behind your whole walk, just skylarking on the straight and narrow. And now with your two days of zeal, you're going to rebuke everybody and be impatient with everybody that they're not keeping up with you. How did the body of Christ ever exist without you? It's amazing, isn't it? So let me give you a word of advice to those who are in this place of this newfound zeal. I want to say to you, be careful. Be careful. Because you might lose some friends you'll never recover along the way. Take steps to remind yourself that you're not as smart as you think. Maybe you need to write it on your hand. Hey, buddy, you're not as smart as you think. And look at it. Put it on your mirror if you have to. So when you wake up in the morning, and first of all, you see what a mess you are in real life. Secondly, look on the mirror, and it says, remember, you're not as smart as you think. Oh, who put that up there? The devil put that up there. You know, you get, put it up there. If you're in that place, you may live to regret some of the things that you're doing right now. Open your eyes and discover how much you don't know. That's what I would say to you. Begin today to take a humbler approach with those around you. That is not to say quit learning. That is not to say quit digging. That is not to say quit being zealous. That is not to say quit charging forward. It is to say think about the people around you along the way. Let God temper you. Donald Gray Barnhouse used to say that true zeal with knowledge only comes from the realization of God's valuation of each individual soul. God values highly each soul around you. Who are we to come along and think we're superior? Who are we to come along and think we're know-it-alls? Remember how much God values the person sitting next to you. The one on the left, the one on the right, the one in front of you, the one behind you. Let God begin to make you more Christ-like in the midst of all of this zeal. And then I want to say a word of encouragement to those of you that are coming out of this. And you feel, oh man, I've been there. Oh, thank you, Jesus. I'm not there tonight. Now, Lord, I don't know if it's the gray hair. I don't know if it's the baldness. I don't know if it's the fact my metabolism is slowing down. I haven't been getting enough sleep, but all I know is I'm not mad anymore. And I want to love people. So, Lord, whether it's any of the above, if you've allowed this, Lord, Whatever it is, I just thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that anymore. Well, those of you that are like that, you're coming through it, you've, you've come through it, and you know what it's like to be there. I want to say to you, be patient with those around you that are right in the middle of a zeal explosion, and they're angry, and they're superior, and they don't respect anybody anymore, and all they do is chop down everybody around them. And be patient with them, and remember the way that you have had to take for God to make you become more loving and passionate for his glory alone and patient in his sight. I love reading about David Livingston. H.M. Stanley went to Africa in 1871 to find and report on David Livingston, whose zeal had carried him into deep, dark Africa. He spent several months in the missionary's company, carefully observing the man and his work. Livingston never spoke to Stanley about spiritual matters, but Livingston's loving and patient compassion for the African people was beyond Stanley's comprehension. He could not understand how the missionary could have such love for and patience with the backward pagan people among whom he had so long ministered. Livingston literally spent himself in untiring service for those people whom he had no reason whatsoever to love except for the sake of Christ. 
Stanley wrote in his journal these words. He said, When I saw that unwearied patience, when I saw that unflagging zeal, and those enlightened sons of Africa, I became a Christian at David Livingston's side, though he never spoke one word to me about it. The power of a truly zealous life tempered by the love of God, tempered by knowledge, and tempered by a passion for God's glory alone. These are the things we can learn by looking at Jesus and his zeal for God. May we learn these lessons and learn them soon and well. Well, let's go on to the second thing here, his sign. We've seen his zeal. Let's look at his sign in John 2, 18. It is the tendency for unbelief always to want another sign. So we read here, So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us, seeing you do these things? You see, they were looking for a Messiah. They wanted to throw off the Roman yoke. They wanted a militant Messiah with lots of power. So they were open to the fact that the Messiah might come in and do something shocking. So here he comes in, he makes a little scourge of cords, and one man against the whole temple full drives out the entire lot. It's an amazing thing. Some Bible commentators feel it's the greatest miracle Jesus ever did. It was so impossible. So they watch all that happen. They're amazed. And they come over and they're thinking, well, maybe this looks like some kind of a claim to be the Messiah. Now, if he can really prove it up, we might believe it. And if he can really show some power, he might be the one to throw off the Roman yoke. We'll harness that power. We'll go forth and do impossible, miraculous warfare, feats of grandeur, and we'll do it. So they come and they say, look, now what kind of a sign do you show us since you've done this sign? That's effectively what they're saying. See, unbelief always wants another sign. Now you've done this great thing. Now what great thing can you show us that you have the right to do a great thing? Could you do an awesome thing to prove the great thing? Do it now. We want to see it. That is so like unbelief. It's this old thing, show me and I'll believe. You witness to somebody about Jesus, the love of Christ, the new life, the freedom, the forgiveness of sin, the lightning of the load, and they say, if he would just appear before me and do a miracle, I would believe. Jesus says, believe and I'll show you, always. He never condescends to some unbelieving curiosity that turns him into nothing more than a sideshow exhibit. So they say, do this great thing for us. You remember when Jesus was before Herod? He went in before Herod, and the Bible says in Luke 23, 8 and 9, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. Oh, I can't believe it. He's here. For he had desired, the Bible says, for a long time to see him. Why? He wanted to be saved? No. Wanted to repent of his sins? No. What he wanted was to see a miracle done by him. And so he questioned Jesus with many words, and Jesus answered him nothing, and Jesus did no miracle. He just stood there silent. He never acquiesced to some desire for a show of power just for the curious unbelief of some individual. So here they come. Give us the ultimate sign of awesome power that you're the Messiah. And the interesting thing is that's exactly what he does. But they don't know it. Look at verse 19. Jesus answered and said to them, All right, we're in the temple, talking temple talk here. Let's talk temple talk. Destroy this temple three days, I raise it up. That's the sign. (gasps) The Jews said it's taken 46 years we've been working on this temple. 16 years before Jesus' birth. 30 years after his birth, he being 30 years old now. 46 years. You're going to raise it up in three days, John says. Footnote. But he was speaking about his body and they didn't even have a clue about it. They never even realized it. Now you might say, well, why doesn't he speak to them in straight terms? Why this veiled terminology? Because Jesus, you see, always spoke according to what was in men's hearts. The Bible says in Proverbs 26, 5, it says, Answer a fool according to his folly. Don't waste the wisdom of God on someone who doesn't even care about it. Answer a fool according to his folly. And think of this, if he would have answered them more directly, if he would have just really laid it out and done what they wanted, he would have brought his ministry to an abrupt end. In other words, if he would have just said, let me tell you who I really am and let me give you a really good explanation, if they would have really understood it, 
then they would have just sought to get rid of him, like they eventually did, and he would have been cut off before his time. So he spoke in veiled phrases to them, because everything was to be done in God's timing, and yet he gave them the most precise response to their question. Give us the sign that you're the Messiah. That's the implication. And however obscure his answer might seem, it told him the greatest and most important sign he could ever give, and that it was his death and his resurrection. That's the sign he's giving. It's the equivalent of him saying back to them, you ask me for a sign, I'll give you one. You will kill me and I will rise again. That's the sign. I will rise again from the third day after my crucifixion. That's effectively what he went on to unfold as time went by. And so if I do not rise from the dead, you will not need to believe that I'm the Messiah. That's the sign. But if I do rise from the dead, having foretold it at the beginning of the ministry, you killing me at the end of my ministry, if I rise from the dead, having predicted it, and then you kill me, then I rise again, then you have no excuse to not believe on me. All of it, of course, is veiled to them. They don't understand that. In Matthew 12:39, he said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And when it's all done and we see it, he dies and he rises again just like he said. That's the sign he gave always to the non-believing people. And that is still the sign. You want a sign? If Jesus would just do a miracle, just a sign, I'd believe in him. He's already done it. It is the most well-attested fact in the history of the human race. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's an interesting thing here, and that is that the truth has power to speak to men after many years. Do you see it? Look at John 2.22. You see, John fills in the gap in verse 21. He says he was speaking of the temple of his body, but even John didn't know that. None of the disciples knew it because in verse 22, it says, Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Do you realize that great truth lay dormant in their minds and hearts for three years and had no effect on their life? Three years. That is an amazing thing. What it tells me is that we can take in truth, hear it with our own ears, roll it around our own minds, and it can then drop into some spot in our heart, some archive in our mind, but then suddenly, years later, the Holy Spirit activates that truth. It seems to break forth upon us with great light. All of a sudden, it's got a grip on our thinking. All of a sudden, we can't think about anything else. All of a sudden, we're preoccupied with this truth, and we're being changed like never before. That's the incredible thing about the Word of God. That's one of the things that keeps me going in my preaching. Because I sit here and I sew out the Word of God and some of you smile, you take notes, you nod. The nod thing is incredible. It just is so encouraging. So I always go back to the nodders. Thank you for the nod. Ooh, you know, I'm ready to go over to the non-nodding section, you know. There are those that just sit and they'll listen to the Word of God and it's incredible to me. They just sit like this. They're on a long journey. A long way from this building. Week after week, I always wonder. But I realize the ears are there, still attached to the head. The channel is open. I'm going to keep sticking this stuff in there. And maybe one of these days, all of a sudden, the Spirit of God begins to move. And... The next thing you know, they're in the front row, taking notes and nodding. It's amazing. <laughs> For three years, they went around with this truth in their heart. It had no effect on them whatsoever. I'm at a point in my life right now. I don't know if it's I'm going bald. I don't know if I don't get enough sleep. Or that I'm getting older or going gray. I don't know which. Maybe none of the above. But I do know that there are things I learned years ago that are suddenly awakening within me. I remember another preacher, he was a little strange. So strange I could hardly listen to him, but I remember one message he gave and he kept shouting from the Song of Solomon, You must see that you are black. 
you must see that you are... He goes, back is back is back is back is back is back is back. And then he went... I thought, I'm running for the door. This is too weird. But you know something? I'm beginning to see how black my sin is. He was right. That was 23 years ago I heard that sermon. And I just shared it with you. So here's the power. The great truth laying dormant for years and suddenly coming to life. Is God activating some truths in your life that have been there for a long time? Don't put him off. Don't push him away. Surely this is the time for that truth to get a grip on your mind and your heart and your soul. Get in step. Get on your knees. Ask God why now, after all this time, why that truth? Why is this affecting you so? And let God show you with his gracious loving hand just exactly what he's doing. So his zeal, his sign, finally his knowledge. We come to John 2.23. And here's an amazing thing. Here we see Christ's distrust of certain believers. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. You think, man, that's great. More converts. But then this, Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. You know what these are? You know why he doesn't commit himself to them, even though it says they believed in his name when they saw the miracles? These are bandwagon people. You know what bandwagon people are? They're people that show up in the church when there's something really going on. And there was something really going on here. So all these bandwagon people came. They saw the miracles. And now this is the kind of guy I want to believe in, a miracle worker. Remember, they want a powerful Messiah who can do miracles, who can have such power, he could lead them in an unparalleled victory to throw off the Roman yoke. They're believing in his power, not his message. And Jesus knows that. They have selfish ends. So Jesus does not commit himself to them because he knew all men bandwagon believers. You know, the problem with that kind of belief is it sets you up for the Antichrist. Those people that are just into signs and wonders, they don't follow Jesus because of his teaching, because of his word, because they want a life with him. They are following after the stuff, the miracles, the signs, the wonders. The Bible tells us that Satan is going to come with all power, signs, and lying wonders in 2 Thessalonians 2. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. See, the Bible is clear to us that Jesus commits himself to people. What a thought! That Jesus commits himself to people, and what he does is he commits himself to people that believe in his word and his teaching about himself. If you believe in his teaching, you must turn from your sins and follow Christ. If you believe in his teaching, you must pick up your cross daily and deny yourself. If you would be his disciple, he will question you and say, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things I say? If you love me, he will say to you, You must keep my commandments. So when people hear that from Christ and his word, and they believe in that teaching, and they still want to follow Christ, well, then he commits himself to an individual like that. And what a great thing it is to have the Son of God commit himself to you personally. When I came to Christ, I thought I was committing myself to him. I find out now he's committed himself to me. And that whatever change has happened has been because of his commitment to me. Don't be one of those people who's a bandwagon believer, but Christ does not commit himself to you, or you will find yourself eternally lost. And you'll be lost right now in this life and lost in the life to come. He commits himself to those who will believe his teaching about who he is and will follow him. And so we see the knowledge of Christ. He knows what is in men. With that knowledge, he came and he cleansed the temple. With that knowledge, he will have an examination period with every human being who has ever lived. Everyone will pass before his throne. And with that knowledge, knowing every thought you have ever had pass through your brain and every passion on your heart, he will interview you. He will try you, and if you have not committed your life to him here, he will commit you to eternal darkness, exiled from the presence of God and his love forever. It is with that knowledge you will face the judge. 
and there will be no doubts, no darkness, nothing unfair, but exactness, only exactness. So we must look at the knowledge of Jesus and we must have a sense of respect for God and a respect for the fact that he knows what is in your heart. If you sense Christ hasn't committed himself to you, you don't know his move of love on your life and the move of his spirit, maybe the problem is with you because I'll tell you something, he's totally faithful and totally loving. God is love. And where he finds that right heart, he rushes in to manifest that love. The problem is always with the man or the woman, never, ever with him. And so he commits himself to those who surrender their hearts to him. And he cleansed the temple. And now the temple no longer even exists. Now the temple is the body of every man or woman who believes on him. And I believe he would love to cleanse his temple today. Because it was that love that drove him to cleanse it then, and it's that love that would drive him to cleanse it now, and you are the temple he lives in. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. Oh, how we love to read these pages with red writing all over them in our Bibles. Red words placed in red to show us that they're your words. We love to read your words, Lord. We love to think on them, and we love to watch you in action. And Lord Jesus, we want to tell you today that we long to be like you. We long for your zeal, Lord. We long for the zeal of our Father's house to eat us up. But Lord, we want our zeal like yours to be tempered with a pure passion for God's glory and tempered with a true knowledge, tempered, Lord, with love. Help us. Help us to grow up into Christ to that full, mature Christian man or woman. And we do look toward you in utter dependence for the power of your Holy Spirit and the deep, rich work of your word to bring this to pass as we simply come and say that we are willing and we will follow. And so we trust you and we give you all the glory for all that you have done and all that you will do. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.